we want to get started. Good to be back with you. By this point of our class, we've looked at two C's of the seven C's of history. Remember that outline of history from Answers in Genesis. We've looked at, we've looked in depth at creation uh, accomplished by God in six solar days around 4000 BC. We then also looked in depth at corruption, the fall of man and its effects. And that, again, likely took place around the same time, around 4000 BC, very closely following creation. But now we come to our third C of the seven C's of history, and that's catastrophe, the Great Flood. Now, when did the Great Flood take place? Following our time information that's given to us in Genesis, especially the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies, we can conclude that the flood took place about 1,750 years after the flood. I'm sorry, after creation. So what would have been about 2,350 BC? 2,350 BC is when we have the Great Flood. Now that number, like the date for creation around 4,000 BC, that's going to contradict a lot of modern history books and especially their dates for the beginnings of ancient civilizations like Sumer or Egypt. For example, if you look up when Egypt, the kingdom of Egypt was founded, you'll probably see a date around 3,150 BC. That's when it's asserted the kingdom of Egypt began. But of course, that's, that's, before, that's before the flood. So what do we do with that? Well, remember, we operate from a biblical worldview. We are not to reinterpret the Bible just to fit man's theories or his archaeological assertions, but we interpret the archaeological data according to what is revealed in the trustworthy and authoritative word of God. Now, this is not something that comes, some of these conclusions are not so direct from the Bible, so they can be adjusted, but we always start with the Bible and we use that as our, as our way of interpreting what we see in the world. This is what it means to have a biblical worldview. And as Christians, that's what we're called to do. It's the, way to, it's the way to be wise. Now, like our previous C's of history, we're going to spend several lessons looking at this far-reaching event, this great catastrophe, the Great Flood, recorded in our Bibles from Genesis 6 to Genesis 9. In this first lesson on the flood, we're going to focus on just two main questions. Why does God send the flood? And then why does God save Noah and his family from the flood? And here's our approach to answering these questions. Today, we're going to investigate and observe Genesis 6, 5 to 7, 1. We'll then work through some important interpretation questions, questions that arise from this passage. And believe me, there are a lot. And then we'll consider how our world parallels what Noah was facing in his day. Now let's pray before we go on. Great God, as we consider the flood, this catastrophe, Lord, I know that we are tempted to say, oh, I know about the flood. Oh, there's nothing to learn here. But God, no, this is, this is something we need to come to afresh because you were revealing yourself in a very purposeful way. You were revealing many aspects of your character that are so important for us to appreciate, so important for us to realize for our own relationships with you and for our situation in the world. Lord, I pray that you'd open your word to us so we may be transformed by it as we were meant to be. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, when thinking about Noah and the flood, I'm reminded of a Babylon Bee headline I saw some years ago. Now, if you don't know the Babylon Bee, it's a web publication that describes itself as your, your trusted source for Christian news satire. So it's a site that publishes many fictional articles that are both humorous and poignant. Well, one such article I found has this headline and photo. Toddler horrified by image of God's terrible wrath on bedroom wall. And you can see the image right there. Well, if you think about it, the bee is making a serious point. It is common even for non-Christians to make cute depictions of Noah's Ark and the various animals that animals gathered by Noah before the coming of the flood. Many consider this appropriate decoration for a child's nursery or a kid's birthday card. But when you think about what the flood really was and what the ark really represented, a much more sobering picture emerges. Remember, the flood was a comprehensive act of divine judgment in which all life on earth, apart from what was in the sea and apart from what was in the ark, was utterly and violently destroyed. Imagine if such a flood were unleashed on the world today. What would that look like? The tallest skyscrapers toppled and submerged in water? Every ill-prepared ship broken up by the violence of giant waves produced by seismic and volcanic disturbances? Every person soul upon soul of men, women, and children who are made in the image of God in every land animal and bird, covered, crushed, and drowned by unceasing water. Imagine all land-based life perishing except for a tiny remnant specifically preserved on a large lifeboat. Would such an event be fitting for a child's nursery, fittingly remembered? Now, my point is not that we need to reconsider our kids' decor. My point is that we need to remember what the flood really represents, an overwhelming display of the wrath and mercy of God. But why the flood? What would cause such a good and generous creator God to utterly destroy his creation. Well, let's find out from the text. Take your Bibles, please, and open to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. We're only reading the first part of the flood narrative today. From Genesis 6, 5 to chapter 7, verse 1. But it will help us answer this question. Why the flood? As context, remember that this is many generations after the fall. You heard that chronological information at the beginning of today's class, but just a little more. By this point, Adam, even long-lived Adam, has been dead for centuries. Things have descended to such a level in humanity that even the sons of God, which I take to be angels, have wickedly commingled with the daughters of men, according to Genesis 6, 1-4. 
Now, the details of how that happened are not fully given to us. But verse 3 in chapter 6 clarifies that God held man at least partly responsible for this heinous act. Now, let's read Genesis 6, 5 and following to see even more about the state of the earth. So follow along with me, starting at verse 5. Then the Lord, that is Yahweh, then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yahweh was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark and the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, flesh which, in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food, which is edible, and gather it to yourself. And it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Then Yahweh said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Very sobering passage of scripture, but very instructive. As always, when we study a passage of the Bible, we want to start by just making simple observations of the text. So let's do that here. Notice the phrase that we see in verse 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. We've seen this kind of phrase before in Genesis, haven't we? It appears throughout the book. Remember, what is it that this phrase affirms? What kind of literature are we dealing with if we see this phrase? History. Historical narrative. 
This text claims to be a record of what actually happened. What happened to Noah? This is the record of it. Notice the descriptions of the people of the earth on the, in the days of Noah. Verse 5 says, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Verse 5 also says, every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. Verse 11 says, the earth was corrupt. Verse 11 says also, the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12 says, the earth was corrupt. Verse 12 says, all flesh had corrupted their way. Verse 13 says, the earth is filled with violence because of them. And chapter 7, verse 1 says, and Noah alone is righteous on earth. Eight different times then, God refers to man's universal wickedness. And what is God's attitude toward what he sees in man? Notice the text says, he was sorry that he made man. And he was grieved to his heart. Now, isn't that a surprising statement? God was sorry? God was grieved? As a result, God is determined to destroy all mankind. And not just man. Notice all land animals and birds are to be included in the destruction. But in contrast to all other men, notice what the text says about Noah. Verse 8, Noah found favor with God. Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And then chapter 7, verse 1, Noah alone is righteous before God. Now, again, this is a very repeated and emphasized idea. What about Noah's family members? Were they also righteous? Well, it's interesting that there aren't any descriptions in this passage regarding their own righteousness. They're not listed as righteous along with Noah. In fact, when we see in chapter 7, verse 1, you alone I seem to be righteous, that you is singular in Hebrew, not plural, not you or your family. It's you, Noah. All of that is very interesting. It does appear the family supports Noah, obeys Noah, as Noah seeks to obey God's commands and construct the ark. So there is that. But Noah himself is highlighted as the righteous one. Notice verse 18, where we see God talk about a covenant. Who establishes the covenant between God and Noah? God does. And besides build an ark, what commands does God give to Noah? Notice verse 18, he says, enter the ark with your family. Verse 19 and 20, he says, take two of all animal kinds into the ark, male and female. In verse 21, he says, gather food. And for whom is Noah to gather food? For himself? for his family, and for the animals. Now, this is also something we want to take note of, because once again, we see human and animal food being talked about together. It says, gather food for yourselves and food for them, indicating that it is the same food. And humans have what kind of diet at this time? A vegetarian diet, a diet that does not include animal meat. Because that only comes after the flood when God says, I've given these for food to you as well. And so it would appear the animals were the same. 
Have you noticed the term cubit in your Bibles? What's a cubit? First of all, I think it's a very cute sounding term, <laughs> but actually it's, it's just a unit of measurement. Cubit is an ancient, ancient uh, measurement of length that represents the distance from the elbow to the fingertips, about 18 inches. Though the length of the cubit did vary over time and in different places. Talk more about the cubit and the dimensions of the arc in detail in a later lesson. Notice, notice what is Noah's response to all God's commands? The text says he did everything that the Lord commanded him. All right, we've made time to make observations. Let's proceed now to some important interpretation questions. I told you there are some pretty significant ones here. First, why does God send a flood on mankind? What's the answer? This is God's necessary response to man's wickedness. Man is so reprehensibly wicked. It's demonstrated over and over in the text. God cannot stand to endure anymore man's incessant and increasing evil. It's all over the earth. It's reached such a high level. God must respond. Now, what does this reveal to us about God? And this pronouncement of judgment, what do we see about the character of God? Multiple things. What's one thing? Certainly, we see that God is wrathful. And remember what the term wrath means. Wrath is just an older term for anger. God is an angry God. He is full of wrath. That which he hates, he has a burning anger against, an overwhelming anger against, and it manifests in judgment. But we don't just see that God is wrathful. We see that God is extremely holy. God is a God who cannot stand sin. His holiness is connected to his anger. His holiness, his holiness must blaze forth in hot anger against sin. But this too is connected to another attribute. We see here that God is just. God is wrathful, God is holy, but God is just. The one true God is a God who will give to everyone according to what they deserve. You remember what Romans says, what does man earn by his sin? The wages of sin is death. This is what man deserves. Man deserves God's wrath because of sin. God is only just to mete out this sentence. We see God is holy, we see God is wrathful, we see God is just. But notice, we see God is also extremely patient. God is extremely patient. Consider, we are centuries after the fall, 1,700 years after the fall, and after the first murder of Abel and Cain. God was very gracious in those instances. But what has man done since those first sins? Amended his ways? Turned to God? Not at all. Man has gotten worse and worse. Violence has multiplied. The entire earth has become corrupt. And all of this is crying out 
for a holy response to God, or response from God, the same way that Abel's blood cried out to God. He's holy. He's wrathful. But what does God do? He waits. He gives more time. Another year, another decade, another century, another thousand years. 1,750 years, God has watched man's evil multiply and more and more rebellion against him and more and more harm against man's neighbor. God is like the vineyard owner in Jesus' parable in Luke 13. He keeps coming to the tree year after year looking for fruit. And he keeps finding nothing. But he ultimately decides, I'll give it another year before I uproot and burn this tree. God is very slow to anger. This is something he emphasizes throughout the scriptures. He is long-suffering, and we see that even here in this beginning of the flood account. But there is a limit to God's patience. God does eventually say, enough is enough. I have given you enough time. And so he says here, think just how terrible the sin of the world in Noah's day must have been for these descriptions. All the world is corrupt. All the world is filled with violence. And consider how long this went on. Because God is holy and just, along with being patient, we cannot let sin go undealt with forever. That was true back then. That's true today. Notice also in this passage, we see that God is extremely good. God is extremely good. We say, what? This is wrath. Where, where do you see the goodness of God? You can never separate God's goodness from God's wrath. In fact, you can never separate any of God's attributes from one another. This is one thing that my theology professor at seminary has emphasized to us students many times. He says, you must constantly be working for the integration of God's perfections, God's attributes. Never separate them from one another. The Bible may emphasize one attribute at a certain time, but they're always all active. And so even in wrath, God is demonstrating his goodness. How so? Well, we can see this without too much thought. We see in this passage that God is greatly grieved by sin and by the violence that is in the earth. Why? This can only be because God is a good and compassionate God. It moves him. It makes him sorrowful to see evil being done instead of good. In fact, his goodness is so great that it moves him to act. He cannot let evil continue on like that. If God were not so moved by so much evil, we would have a right to question whether his heart is good. God would be like a corrupt king whose kingdom were filled with violence and injustice, and he just sits on, not caring, not doing anything. But God is no such king. His goodness moves him to deal with evil. And again, that was true back then, and that's true today. Along with this goodness, we see that God is merciful. God is merciful in this passage. Even in wrath, even as he looks at the comprehensive corruption of the earth, he does not destroy all. God determines to preserve Noah and his family. 
and even all the animals of the world at that time. God allows for them, God allows for the human race and for the land animals to continue. In one sense, God could have brought human rule on the earth to an end. I mean, it's not like, not like man has given himself a very good record. Man has proven to be the worst image bearers and under rulers ever. But God shows the children of Adam undeserved favor by letting the line of humanity, letting the line of Noah continue. And of course, this is connected to God's faithfulness. Here's another attribute of God we see in this passage. God promised in the garden that the seed of the woman would continue, and it would remain in conflict with the serpent till one came from the seed of the woman to ultimately defeat and deliver from the serpent. But it sure looks like the seed of the serpent has multiplied to the point where there's almost no seed of the woman left. There's no godly seed left. Will the serpent then triumph? Will God be forced to end humanity due to the serpent's corruption? Is God, is he forced to break his promise? Never may it be. As is the case so often in the Old Testament, when God's promises seem to hang by a thread, God proves himself faithful. And so he does here. God judges the world, but he preserves Noah and a godly seed. Let that be a comfort to each one of us. When God's promises seem to hang for us by mere threads. Now, we could say more about the attributes of God, but these are the ones that I think come most to mind from this passage. These observations, though, they provoke another question. How is it that God can feel sorrow and even be sorry that he made man? That's what the passage says. And this revelation is indeed profound. We sometimes, even often, think of God as being only stoic. Or maybe he's only angry or only happy. But God's more dynamic than that. God can feel sorrow. Yes, the perfect God, who's worthy of all worship, the one who is always and eternally satisfied in himself, is able to experience grief. And what makes God sorrowful, according to the passage? Sin. It grieves God to see sin, to see people hurting one another, to see people failing to imitate him, to see people serving false idols that cannot satisfy, to see people rebel against their true king. The Bible is very clear that God has emotions. If God didn't react at all emotionally to sin, we would have a right to wonder whether sin was really a big deal to God, whether God was even good. We are moved, we are grieved by evil, and so is God. A good God is grieved and angry at evil and those who do it. God is so grieved, the text says, that he was sorry that he made man. Now that's really intense. Does that mean that God made a mistake? That God was surprised at this terrible outcome of man and therefore had to change his plans? Or even more basically, that despite God's claims to the contrary, we'll see this later in the scriptures, that God is actually 
changeable. God says, I don't change. Therefore, you're not consumed. But here, it certainly seems like God changes. And some people have gone so far as to say, you know what? God really does change. God makes mistakes. How are we to understand these things in the text? If God is immutable, if God does not change, then how can God experience emotion and even repentance? Well, the solution here is to understand that both God's emotions and God's repentance are eternally ordained and sovereignly decided. God's emotions, God's repentance, they are eternally ordained and sovereignly decided. See, God has always willed to experience certain emotions in time and to even react to circumstances by apparent regret and change of course. You see, it was always God's plan to send a flood on man's wickedness. God's sorrow and God's regret were foreknown and foreordained as the means by which he would act in sending the flood. We see a similar situation in other parts of the Bible. Remember when Israel creates the golden calf, Exodus, uh, around Exodus uh, 32? What does God say to Moses? Let me alone that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. Moses then intercedes for Israel and turns aside God's burning wrath. Did God change? Was God's foreknowledge or sovereignty compromised in that event? Not at all. God had foreknown and foreordained that he would be angry over Israel's sin and that Moses would rescue Israel as an intercessor. The whole exchange was sovereignly planned and ordained to show forth the glory of God and accomplish his purposes. Same thing happens with Jonah and Nineveh. You remember, Jonah is given this prophecy, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But God relents of this sure destruction because of the repentance of the Ninevites. We might ask, did God change his mind? Did he suddenly have a change of heart and say, well, you know, I'll be gracious today? No, God had always ordained Nineveh's repentance and his own forestalling of judgment. Now you might say, well, that must mean that God's emotions aren't real and that God is just play acting. Well, no, that's not true. God is not fake. God does not lie. There is a doctrine, the doctrine of divine impassibility, that commonly stated says that God is not subject to emotion or passion. And some interpret that to mean that God does not experience emotion. But that's not quite right. The doctrine of divine impassibility is that God is not controlled by emotion. He's not subject to emotion or subject to passions. God, as the independent, all-satisfied God that he is, he's not subject to passions or moods, but himself wills whatever emotion he experiences. He says, I will, I determine that I will experience grief here. I determine that I will experience love or whatever emotion that it is there. And in this way, God demonstrates that his emotions are not like our emotions. Because what are our emotions like? Oh, they just overwhelm us. We say, oh, I'm just overcome. It's like something outside of us that we become subject to. But not so with God. 
God is not subject to emotions, but any emotion that he experiences in time, he himself wills. I strongly disagree with those who say that God's emotions that are recorded in the Bible are only apparent and they are only accommodations to man's limited understanding. Truly, God is beyond us, but this is all over the scriptures. If the words of the Bible have any real meaning, then God must have emotions. You know, people say, oh, it's just a figure. Well, a figure of what? There must be something to the reference. There must be something behind the figure, if it's a figure. Or say, oh, it's a figure that, that, that God has changed. Well, that itself needs explanation because God says he doesn't change. Well, the solution is that God does experience emotion. And in one sense, he experiences repentance. But only in the sense that these were, these were already ordained by God. God's emotions... God does have emotions. We reflect God's emotions by being made in the image of God. But his emotions are not like ours, and neither is his repentance like ours. By the way, if you want to see a really interesting intersection of this, 1 Samuel 15, when God repudiates Saul as king of Israel, twice in the chapter, God says that he does not change or repent. But then in the middle of the chapter, he says, I regret making Saul king. In the same passage, what is that showing us? That the Bible contradicts itself? No, but it shows us that God's changing or God's repentance is not like ours. God is above us, and he is sovereign over all things, even his emotions and apparent changes. This foreordaining of emotion and repentance, moreover, does not mean that God is deceptive. If God's foreordained means bringing about the situations that he ordains were absent, then God would indeed proceed with what he originally is observed to do. Without Moses' intercession, if Moses had not been there, then Israel would have been wiped out after the golden calf. God was not joking about that when he announced that intention. Without Jonah's preaching, without the Ninevites' repentance, the city of Nineveh would have been obliterated. God was not simply pulling pulling people's legs. You see, God's expressed intentions in each one of these passages is real, and his emotions are real, yet they are still under the umbrella of God's sovereign power and foreknowledge. Though these alternatives would have happened, if not for intercession, they could never have happened because God, in fact, ordained the intercession. Now, part of this is beyond our understanding. We might not be able to see how God's expressed intention can be genuine, even when he knows that the outcome will be different than what he expresses. But God is God. God is able to do this, whether we are able to understand it or not. I mean, think of Jesus's own experience with Lazarus's death. Remember how Jesus reacts? Even though Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead shortly, what does he do? He weeps. And he weeps in such a way that those looking on say, look at how he loved that man. Was it all an act? Was Jesus just playing a part? No, it was genuine. But how was Jesus able to experience and manifest such genuine grief, even when knowing the future that was filled with so much hope? I don't know exactly. 
but he was. God's ways are above ours. So coming back to Genesis, the regret of God's heart in Genesis 6 is real. Because of God's character, he chooses to feel this emotion in time in light of man's extreme wickedness. But even this experience of strong emotion, this regret, it does not make God in the least bit disingenuous or in the least bit unsatisfied with himself. Get this. The joy of God, the satisfaction of God, the complete happiness of God is not at all diminished by sorrow or regret. If God ordains sorrow or even the experience of suffering for himself, it does not diminish his complete joy and satisfaction with himself. We sometimes wonder, why would God choose to experience grief? Why would he choose to experience sorrow or suffering. That seems to contradict the experience of happiness. But even we can be joyful in the midst of sorrow. It's apparently not impossible for God to remain completely satisfied, even when he chooses to experience sorrow in time. Now, I know I just went into a description, uh, discussion of more abstract theology there, and if you have questions about this, please email me. We can talk about it more. But I hope you're getting the concept. God does experience emotion, even repentance, but not like we do, because he's God. In his good sorrow and his righteous anger, God promises to destroy the earth with water. But he says he will spare Noah and his family. Why? Why spare them? Well, the text makes it pretty clear. Noah was righteous. God spared Noah because Noah was righteous. But does this mean that Noah was not a sinner? Well, of course not. We saw from our lesson last week and the week before, everyone born from Adam is sinful. Noah would be included in that. So where did Noah's righteousness come from? He certainly was obedient to God, but why? Did Noah just try harder than most people? Well, before we answer that question, let's turn to another helpful passage. Go to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11. We've been making actually a number of references to Hebrews in the last few lessons because the writer of Hebrews makes comment on some of these early people. Hebrews 11, verses 6 to 7, the writer of Hebrews makes comment on Noah. Hebrews 11, 6 to 7. The writer says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, that's God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is according to faith. Why is it that Noah was righteous, that Noah obeyed God, according to our passage in Hebrews? Because Noah had faith. Because Noah believed God. 
Noah's righteousness came from faith, simple faith. He was an heir of righteousness according to faith. And where did Noah's faith come from? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We looked at this recently. God gave Noah the faith. Faith is a gift from God. This was not Noah's doing. It was God's. And this is consistent with what we even see in Genesis 6, right? God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. Unilateral, no conditions mentioned, no permission asked. God acted all by himself, and he determined to show favor to Noah. You see, Noah was part of that same seed of which Abel was a part. The very seed promised by God to the serpent in Genesis 3, I will place enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. This seed of the woman is the seed of faith, and it's the one that God unilaterally promises to create. Genesis. Indeed, the whole Bible is about tracing this seed. God chose Noah to be part of this seed, and therefore he gave Noah faith. Noah's faith caused Noah to be obedient to God and to be at odds with the world. We do indeed admire Noah for his righteousness in the midst of so much evil. But we must remember, God made Noah righteous. God gave Noah the faith. And God gets the glory. Now, sometimes people say that salvation was achieved differently by people in the Old Testament. That in Christ, we have the covenant of grace according to faith. Before Christ, it was the covenant of works. We believe by faith and we're saved, but before people were saved by obedience to God's commands. But this is not true. God's commands were never the means of salvation. Paul said in the New Testament, the law, the law of God, was introduced actually to increase awareness of sin and the awareness of one's need for a savior. People have always been and always will be saved by grace through faith and God's promised Savior and substitute, Jesus Christ. Now, it's true that God progressively revealed the details of salvation. Not all the details were known by Adam or by Abel or by Noah, as they are today. But the main message has been present since the fall in the garden. And we saw this ourselves. Man needs God to provide mankind a Savior, and God promises to provide it. Adam and Eve were shown that they needed God to cover their shame and to defeat the serpent on their behalf. The people of Israel were shown through various means that they needed God to provide a substitute, to bear their sins, to make them righteous. Later Israelites would see that this substitute would be God's anointed one, the Messiah. He would be the king of Israel, yet he would also be a sufferer and a man of sorrows. But this mystery of the gospel was revealed fully when Jesus came. God would not simply provide a substitute. God is the substitute. God sent his own son to be the savior. The savior that Adam and Noah and Moses and Isaiah and all the other Old Testament saints were looking forward to. As believers in Christ today, we have this mystery of the gospel fully revealed. And that's why we share the fully revealed gospel. Rightly, we declare there is no other name under heaven by which a man may be saved, by which a woman may be saved. Only faith in Jesus Christ, the God-man, has power to save. 
So I say again, salvation has always been by faith in Jesus Christ. Never was it by meritorious works. God was always going to get the glory by accomplishing salvation in this way. Even the faith of every Old Testament saint was an unearned gift from God. The Old Testament has a lot to say about righteous works. And sometimes we may say, oh, it's because, you know, they were saved differently. But that's not the case. It's just evidence. It's evidence of the faith that is in their hearts, the faith that God put there. So we can answer this question again more basically. Why did God spare Noah from the flood? Because God chose to be gracious to Noah, faithful to his own promise, and he gave Noah faith. Noah's obedience was the result of God's grace to him, not the reason for God's grace to him. So what were the Israelites supposed to learn from all this? What were they to learn from this beginning of the flood account? I think chief among the purposes of Moses and the spirit of God would be to draw the Israelites to believe in God. They are to understand that God is holy, wrathful, just, patient, merciful, good, faithful. They were to believe in God as Noah did, to be rescued from the holy judgment of God. Instead, walk with God as Noah did. Let his face shine upon you in blessing, not have his face turn away from you in judgment. Do not be like the wicked, violent, unbelieving world that perished in the judgment. And that was a problem for Israel, wasn't it? When they went through the wilderness, they had a problem with believing God. In this account, is a specific remedy to that problem. And isn't the message the same for us today? Listen to what 2 Peter says. 2 Peter 4, or 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. Give you context. This is Peter warning believers against false teachers and the judgment awaiting false teachers and those who follow them. And Peter says this, 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Did you get that? God knows how to rescue the righteous, but he will judge sinners. May the kindness and severity of God bring you to faith if you do not yet know him. And may we who do know him declare this good but sobering news to others so that they might be brought to faith and to joyous walking with their Lord Jesus. And before we end, I have a few other application questions, just two more. People often claim that God is cruel to have wiped out every person on the face of the earth in the flood. How would you use the text we've discussed today to help them understand that God's actions were just? 
hopefully you see that you can do that, that you should do that. We can see from these texts and many others, the goodness and holiness of God. Because that's the real issue in this objection, right? How could he be so cruel? I thought God was good. Yes, God is good. That's why he did this. For people to call God unjust, they overestimate the goodness of man and they underestimate the goodness of God. This passage from Genesis 6, along with many others that we've looked at previously, they show that there are no good people except for those that God saves. And even those are sinners saved by grace. The wickedness of people, by contrast, is extreme and incessant. You've heard statements like the following many times. The question is not, why did God judge so many? The question is, why did he save any at all? Do you realize just how wicked man is? Do you realize just how wicked you are? Don't ask, why did God bring this hard thing? Ask, why do I receive any good from God? This passage shows us God's sensitivity to goodness and to lack of goodness because we see God grieved in his heart. The continual effrontery to God and his goodness by every person on the earth certainly called for God's just punishment. And he was good and just to eventually send it. A side note, we have to have God be the one who shows us what is just. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked. We cannot trust our own judgment of right and wrong unless they are based on the word of God. So when we encounter those who say, I don't think God is just, it's a good opportunity to use what Answers in Genesis calls the don't answer answer strategy. This is basically something from presuppositional apologetics. It's a way to show that somebody's premise invalidates the conclusion. If you say that God is unjust, on what standard are you basing the judgment? Where do you get that sense of justice? If you say you get it from society or from your own sense of right and wrong, well, societies vary on what is justice and person to person varies on what is considered just. There is no real standard. And if there's no standard, you can't judge God. Therefore, your presupposition invalidates itself. The solution is that the standard of justice comes from outside of us, outside of our societies, outside of ourselves. It could only come from God. God must show us what is just and unjust. And he does so in the Bible. That's why we have that sense of justice. God put it there and God informs it. Only the Bible correctly informs our thinking as to what is just or unjust. One other question, and then I'll open it up to you. Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness to an ungodly world. Is our situation any different from his? How should we live in light of this truth? I think you can readily acknowledge that our position is very similar to Noah's. Don't we live in a world that is filled with violence, that seems almost totally corrupt? In fact, 2 Peter 3, if you were just in Hebrews, go to 2 Peter chapter 3, just a few more books forward. 2 Peter 3 makes this connection abundantly clear for us. 2 Peter 3 verses 1 to 13, Peter says, Know this first of all, 
Then in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? That's referring to Jesus's second coming. Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're in the same situation as Noah. Like Noah, you are called to be preachers of righteousness in this doomed generation, warning people of the coming judgment of God on the entire earth because of sin, pleading with them to repent in light of God's patient kindness. Are you such a preacher? Or do you need the message still preached to you so that you might be saved from the coming judgment? Do you look forward to the new heavens and the new earth? Does that inform what you think, what you believe, and what you do? That's all I have for you. Questions about today's lesson? If you think of any questions, by all means, please email me. I'd love to try and answer your questions, talk further with you about these issues. But we'll end for today. Next week, we take a closer look at the events that occur within the flood itself and their timing. Let's close in prayer. Our great God, this is a wondrous piece of revelation. In many ways, God, it is frightening. God, you are, you are a God to be feared. You are a God not to be trifled with. You destroyed the entire earth and all life on it because of its incessant sin. And yet, in wrath, you remembered mercy. You were acting in goodness. Your heart is always good. You saved Noah, and you will yet save those who turn to you today. God, help us to declare this message. Make us bold and loving with the people, our people, who are so lost, who are sons of wrath, sons and daughters destined for your wrath if you should not intervene. Lord, I'm, I'm thinking about 
the rainbow, that sign that you promised to put in the sky after the flood. Lord, it is a beautiful symbol, but it is very meaningful because it not only reminds us of your mercy, but of your holiness and wrath. It's a commemoration of what happened in the flood. It is something to sober us, but to also give us hope. And we praise you for that, God. You are the only Savior. And you show yourself so glorious by saving those who do not deserve it. We did not deserve it, God. But you were so gracious to us. Lord, I pray that those listening today, those at Calvary, would revel in who you are today, in all your attributes, God. None of them could be separated from one another because you are holy, perfect. I pray, God, that for any who need it, they would repent, that they would trust in you for salvation, and Lord, that also they would become more sanctified. We know we all need that, God. Give us a greater love for you and reverence for you. Give us a greater expectation of the future, both in its judgment and in its deliverance, so we might live worthy lives on the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, guys. I'll see you next time.